Welcome to the 41st reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 4, Chapter 4, Section 1. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider praying and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Chapter 4 of the State of the Primitive Church and the Mode of Government in Use Before the Papacy. There are 15 sections. Section 1. Hitherto we have discoursed of the order of church government as delivered to us in the pure word of God, and of ministerial offices as instituted by Christ. See chapter 1, sections 5 and 6, and chapter 3. Now that the whole subject may be more clearly and familiarly explained, and also better fixed in our minds, it will be useful to attend to the form of the early church, as this will give us a kind of visible representation of the divine institution. For although the bishops of those times published many canons, in which they seemed to express more than is expressed by the sacred volume, yet they were so cautious in framing all their economy in the word of God, the only standard, that it is easy to see that they scarcely in any respect departed from it. Even if something may be wanting in these enactments, still, as they were sincerely desirous to preserve the divine institution, and have not strayed far from it, it will be of great benefit here briefly to explain what their observance was. As we have stated that three classes of ministers are set before us in Scripture, so the early church distributed all its ministers into three orders. For from the order of presbyters, part were selected as pastors and teachers, while to the remainder was committed the censure of manners and discipline. To the deacons belonged the care of the poor and the dispensing of alms. Readers and acolytes were not the names of certain offices, but those whom they called clergy they accustomed from their youth to serve the church by certain exercises, that they might the better understand for what they were destined, and afterwards come better prepared for their duty, as I will shortly show at greater length. Accordingly, Jerome, in setting forth five orders in the church, enumerates bishops, presbyters, deacons, believers, catechumens. To the other clergy and monks he gives no proper place. Section 2. All, therefore, to whom the office of teaching was committed they called presbyters, and in each city these presbyters selected one of their number, to whom they gave the special title of bishop, lest, as usually happens, from equality dissension should arise. The bishop, however, was not so superior in honor and dignity as to have dominion over his colleagues, but, as it belongs to a president in an assembly to bring matters before them, collect their opinions, take precedence of others in consulting, advising, exhorting, guide the whole procedure by his authority, and execute what is decreed by common consent, a bishop held the same office in a meeting of presbyters. And the ancients themselves confessed that this practice was introduced by human arrangement according to the exigency of the times. Thus Jerome, on the epistle to Titus, says, quote, A bishop is the same as a presbyter. 
and before dissensions were introduced into religion by the instigation of the devil, and it was said among the people, I am of Paul, and I of Cephas, churches were governed by a common council of presbyters. Afterwards, that the seeds of dissension might be plucked up, the whole charge was devolved upon mandatory rescripts, preventions, and the like, but they all conduct one. Therefore, as presbyters know that by the custom of the church they are subject to him who presides, so let bishops know that they are greater than presbyters more by custom than in consequence of our Lord's appointment, and ought to rule the church for the common good." In another place he shows how ancient the custom was. For he says that at Alexandria, from Mark the Evangelist, and as far down as Heraclius and Dionysius, presbyters always placed one, selected from themselves in a higher rank, and gave him the name of bishop. Each city, therefore, had a college of presbyters consisting of pastors and teachers, for they all performed to the people that office of teaching, exhorting, and correcting, which Paul enjoins on bishops, Titus 1, verse 9, and that they might leave a seed behind them, they made it their business to train the younger men who had devoted themselves to the sacred warfare. To each city was assigned a certain district which took presbyters from it and was considered, as it were, incorporated into that church. Each presbyter, as I have said, merely to preserve order and peace, was under one bishop who, though he excelled others in dignity, was subject to the meeting of the brethren. But if the district which was under his bishopric was too large for him to be able to discharge all the duties of bishop, presbyters were distributed over it in certain places to act as his substitutes in minor matters. These were called corepiscopi, rural bishops, because they represented the bishops throughout the province. Section 3. But in regard to the office of which we now treat, the bishop as well as the presbyters behoved to employ themselves in the administration of word and sacraments. For at Alexandria only, as Arius had there troubled the church, it was enacted that no presbyter should deliver an address to the people, as Socrates says. Jerome does not conceal his dissatisfaction with the enactment. It certainly would have been deemed monstrous for one to give himself out as a bishop, and yet not show himself a true bishop by his conduct. Such then was the strictness of those times, that all ministers were obliged to fulfill the office as the Lord requires of them. Nor do I refer to the practice of one age only, since not even in the time of Gregory, when the church had almost fallen, certainly had greatly degenerated from ancient purity, would any bishop have been tolerated who abstained from preaching. In some part of his twenty-fourth epistle he says, quote, The priest dies when no sound is heard from him, for he calls forth the wrath of the unseen judge against him if he walks without the sound of preaching. Unquote. Elsewhere he says, Quote, when Paul testifies that he is pure from the blood of all men, Acts 20, verse 26, by his words we who are called priests are charged, are arranged, are shown to be guilty, since to those sins which we have of our own we add the deaths of other men, for we commit murder as often as lukewarm and silent we see them daily going to destruction. Unquote. He calls himself and others silent when less assiduous in their work than they ought to be. Since he does not spare even those who did their duty partially, what think you would he do in the case of those who entirely neglected it? For a long time, therefore, it was regarded in the church as the first duty of a bishop to feed the people by the word of God or to edify the church in public and private with sound doctrine. Section 4 As to the fact that each province had an archbishop among the bishops, see chapter 7, section 15, and, moreover, that in the Council of Nice, patriarchs were appointed to be superior to archbishops in order and dignity. This was designed for the preservation of discipline, although in treating of the subject here it ought not to be omitted that the practice was very rare. 
The chief reason for which these orders were instituted was that if anything occurred in any church which could not well be explicated by a few, it might be referred to a provincial synod. If the magnitude or difficulty of the case demanded a larger discussion, patriarchs were employed along with synods, and from them there was no appeal except to a general council. To the government thus constituted, some gave the name of hierarchy, a name, in my opinion, improper, certainly one not used by scripture. For the Holy Spirit designed to provide that no one should dream of primacy or domination in regard to the government of the church. But if, disregarding the term, we look to the thing, we shall find that the ancient bishops had no wish to frame a form of church government different from that which God has prescribed in his word. Section 5. Nor was the case of deacons then different from what it had been under the apostles. See chapter 3, section 6. For they received the daily offerings of the faithful and the annual revenues of the church, that they might apply them to their true uses. In other words, partly in maintaining ministers and partly in supporting the poor. At the side of the bishop, however, to whom they every year gave an account of their stewardship. For although the canons uniformly make the bishop the dispenser of all the goods of the church, this is not to be understood as if he by himself undertook that charge, but because it belonged to him to prescribe to the deacon who were to be admitted to the public alimony of the church and point out to what persons and in what portions the residue was to be distributed, and because he was entitled to see whether the deacon faithfully performed his office. Thus, in the canons which they ascribe to the apostles, it is said, quote, We command that the bishop have the affairs of the church under his control. For if the souls of men which are more precious have been entrusted to him, much more is he entitled to have the charge of money matters, so that under his control all may be dispensed to the poor by the presbyters and deacons, that the administration may be made reverently and with due care, unquote. And in the Council of Antioch it was decreed that bishops who intermeddled with the effects of the church without the knowledge of the presbyters and deacons should be restrained. But there is no occasion to discuss this point farther, since it is evident from many of the letters of Gregory that even at that time, when the ecclesiastical ordinances were otherwise much vitiated, it was still the practice for the deacons to be under the bishops, the stewards of the poor. It is probable that at the first, subdeacons were attached to the deacons to assist them in the management of the poor, but the distinction was gradually lost. Archdeacons began to be appointed when the extent of the revenues demanded a new and more exact method of administration, though Jerome mentions that it already existed in his day. To them belonged the amount of revenues, possessions, and furniture, and the charge of the daily offerings. Hence Gregory declares to the archdeacon Solitanus that the blame rested on him if any of the goods of the church perished through his fraud or negligence. The reading of the word of the people and exhortation to prayer was assigned to them, and they were permitted, moreover, to give the cup and the sacred supper. But this was done for the purpose of honoring their office, that they might perform it with greater reverence, when they were reminded by such symbols that what they discharged was not some profane stewardship, but a spiritual function dedicated to God. Section 6. Hence also we may judge what was the use and of what nature was the distribution of ecclesiastical goods, you may everywhere find, both from the decrees of synods and from ancient writers, that whatever the church possessed, either in lands or in money, was the patrimony of the poor. Accordingly, the saying is ever and anon sounded in the ears of bishops and deacons. Remember that you are not handling your own property, but that destined for the necessities of the poor. If you dishonestly conceal or dilapidate it, you will be guilty of blood. Hence they are admonished to distribute them to those to whom they are due with the greatest fear and reverence, as in the sight of God, without respect of persons. 
Hence also in Chrysostom, Ambrose, Augustine, and other like bishops, those grave obtestations in which they assert their integrity before the people. But since it is just in itself and was sanctioned by a divine law that those who devote their labor to the church shall be supported at the public expense of the church, and some presbyters in that age, having consecrated their patrimony to God, had become voluntarily poor, the distribution was so made that aliment was afforded to ministers and the poor were not neglected. Meanwhile, it was provided that the ministers themselves, who ought to be an example of frugality to others, should not have so much as might be abused for luxury or delicacy but only what might be needful to support their wants. Quote, for those clergy who can be supported by their own patrimony, unquote, says Jerome, quote, commit sacrilege if they accept what belongs to the poor, and by such abuse eat and drink judgment to themselves, unquote. Section 7. At first the administration was free and voluntary, when bishops and deacons were faithful of their own accord, and when integrity of conscience and purity of life supplied the place of laws. Afterwards, when from the cupidity and depraved desires of some bad examples arose, canons were framed to correct these evils, and divided the revenues of the church into four parts, assigning one to the clergy, another to the poor, another to the repair of churches and other edifices, a fourth to the poor, whether strangers or natives. For though other canons attribute this last part to the bishop, it differs in no respect from the division which I have mentioned, for they do not mean that it is his property which he may devour alone or squander in any way he pleases, but that it may enable him to use the hospitality which Paul requires in that order. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. This is the interpretation of Galatius and Gregory, for the only reason which Galatius gives why the bishop should claim anything to himself is that he may be able to bestow it on captives and strangers. Gregory speaks still more clearly. Quote, it is the custom of the apostolic see, unquote, says he, quote, to give command to the bishop who has been ordained to divide all the revenues into four portions, namely, one to the bishop and his household for hospitality and maintenance, another to the clergy, a third to the poor, a fourth to the repair of churches, unquote. The bishop, therefore, could not lawfully take for his own use more than was sufficient for moderate and frugal food and clothing. When any one began to wanton either in luxury or ostentation and show, he was immediately reprimanded by his colleagues, and if he obeyed not, was deprived of his honors. Section 8. Moreover, the sum expended on the adorning of churches was at first very trifling, and even afterwards, when the church had become somewhat more wealthy, they in that matter observed mediocrity. Still, whatever money was then collected was reserved for the poor when any greater necessity occurred. Thus Cyril, when a famine prevailed in the province of Jerusalem, and the want could not otherwise be supplied, took the vessels and robes and sold them for the support of the poor. In like manner, Acacius, bishop of Amida, when a great multitude of the Persians were almost destroyed by famine, having assembled the clergy and delivered this noble address, quote, Our God has no need either of chalices or salvers, for he neither eats nor drinks, unquote melted down the plate that he might be able to furnish food and obtain the means of ransoming the miserable. Jerome also, while inveighing against the excessive splendor of churches, relates that Exuperius, bishop of Toulouse in his day, though he carried the body of the Lord in a wicker basket and his blood in a glass, nevertheless suffered no poor man to be hungry. What I had lately said of Acacius, Ambrose relates of himself. For when the Arians assailed him for having broken down the sacred vessels for the ransom of captives, he made this most admirable excuse. Quote, he who sent the apostles without gold has also gathered churches without gold. The church has gold not to keep, but to distribute and give support in necessity. What need is there of keeping what is of no benefit? 
Are we ignorant how much gold and silver the Assyrians carried off from the temple of the Lord? Is it not better for a priest to melt them for the support of the poor, if other means are wanting, than for a sacrilegious enemy to carry them away? Would not the Lord say, Why have you suffered so many poor to die of hunger, and you certainly had gold wherewith to minister to their support? Why have so many captives been carried away and not redeemed? Why have so many been slain by the enemy? It had been better to preserve living than metallic vessels. These charges you will not be able to answer, for what could you say? I feared lest the temple of God should want ornament. He would answer, Sacraments require not gold, and things which are not bought with gold please not by gold. The ornament of the sacraments is the ransom of captives." Unquote. In a word, we see the exact truth of what he elsewhere says, viz., that whatever the church then possessed was the revenue of the needy. Again, a bishop has nothing but what belongs to the poor. Section 9. We have now reviewed the ministerial offices of the ancient church. For others, of which ecclesiastical writers make mention, were rather exercises and preparations than distinct offices. These holy men, that they might leave a nursery of the church behind them, received young men who, with the consent and authority of their parents, devoted themselves to the spiritual warfare under their guardianship and training, and so formed them from their tender years that they might not enter on the discharge of the office as ignorant novices. All who received this training were designated by the general name of clerks. I could wish that some more appropriate name had been given them, for this appellation had its origin in error, or at least improper feeling, since the whole church is, by Peter, denominated, Greek word, Kappa, Lambda, Eta, Rho, Omicron, Sigma, Clarus, that is, the inheritance of the Lord, 1 Peter 5, verse 3. It was in itself, however, a most sacred and salutary institution that those who wished to devote themselves and their labor to the church should be brought up under the charge of the bishop, so that no one should minister in the church unless he had been previously well trained, unless he had in early life imbibed sound doctrine, unless by stricter discipline he had formed habits of gravity and severer morals, been withdrawn from ordinary business and accustomed to spiritual cares and studies. For as Tyros and the military art are trained by mock fights for true and serious warfare, so there was a rudimental training by which they were exercised in clerical duty before they were actually appointed to office. First, then, they entrusted them with the opening and shutting of the church, and called them Ostiarii. Next, they gave the name of Acolytes to those who assisted the bishop in domestic services, and constantly attended them, first as a mark of respect, and secondly, that no suspicion might arise. Moreover, that they might gradually become known to the people and recommend themselves to them, and at the same time might learn to stand the gaze of all and speak before all, that they might not, when appointed presbyters, be overcome with shame when they came forward to teach, the office of reading in the desk was given them. In this way they were gradually advanced, that they might prove their carefulness in separate exercises until they were appointed subdeacons. All I mean by this is that these were rather the rudimentary exercises of Tyros than functions which were accounted among the true ministries of the church. Section 10. In regard to what we have set down as the first and second heads in the calling of ministers, viz. the persons to be elected and the religious care to be therein exercised, the ancient church followed the injunction of Paul and the examples of the apostles, for they were accustomed to meet for the election of pastors with the greatest reverence and with earnest prayer to God. Moreover, they had a form of examination by which they tested the life and doctrine of those who were to be elected by the standard of Paul, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Only here they sometimes erred with excessive strictness by exacting more of a bishop than Paul requires, and especially in process of time by exacting celibacy. 
that in other respects their practice corresponded with Paul's description. In regard to our third head, however, these who were entitled to appoint ministers, they did not always observe the same rule. Anciently, none were admitted to the number of the clergy without the consent of the whole people, and hence Cyprian makes a labored apology for having appointed Aurelius a reader without consulting the church, because although done contrary to the custom, it was not done without reason. He thus premises, Quote, in ordaining clergy, dearest brethren, we are wont previously to consult you and weigh the manners and merits of each by the common advice. Unquote. But as in these minor exercises there was no great danger, inasmuch as they were appointed to a long probation and unimportant function, the consent of the people ceased to be asked. Afterwards, in other orders also, with the exception of the bishopric, the people usually left the choice and decision to the bishop and presbyters, who thus determined who were fit and worthy, unless perhaps when new presbyters were appointed to parishes, for them the express consent of the inhabitants of the place behoved to be given. Nor is it strange that in this manner the people were not very anxious to maintain their right, for no subdeacon was appointed who had not given a long proof of his conduct in the clerical office, agreeably to the strictness of discipline then in use. After he had approved himself in that degree, he was appointed deacon, and thereafter, if he conducted himself faithfully, he attained to the honor of a presbyter. Thus none were promoted whose conduct had not, in truth, been tested for many years under the eye of the people. There were also many canons for punishing their faults, so that the church, if she did not neglect the remedies, was not burdened with bad presbyters or deacons. In the case of presbyters, indeed, the consent of the citizens was always required, as is attested by the canon which is attributed to Anaclitus. In fine, all ordinations took place at stated periods of the year, that none might creep in stealthily without the consent of the faithful, or be promoted with too much facility without witnesses. Section 11 in electing bishops, the people long retained their right of preventing anyone from being intruded who was not acceptable to all. Accordingly, it was forbidden by the Council of Antioch to induct anyone on the unwilling. This also Leo I carefully confirms. Hence these passages, quote, Let him be elected whom the clergy and people are the majority demand, unquote. Again, quote, Let him who is to preside over all be elected by all, unquote. He, therefore, who is appointed while unknown and unexamined, must of necessity be violently intruded. Again, quote, let him be elected who is chosen by the clergy and called by the people, and let him be consecrated by the provincials with the judgment of the metropolitan, unquote. So careful were the Holy Fathers that this liberty of the people should on no account be diminished, that when a general council assembled at Constantinople were ordaining Nectarius, they declined to do it without the approbation of the whole clergy and people, as their letter to the Roman Senate testified. Accordingly, when any bishop nominated his successor, the act was not ratified without consulting the whole people. Of this you have not only an example, but the form in Augustine in the nomination of Eratius. And Theodoret, after relating that Peter was the successor nominated by Athanasius, immediately adds that the sacerdotal order ratified it, that the magistracy, chief men, and whole people by their acclamation approved. Section 12. It was indeed decreed, and I admit on the best grounds by the council of Laodicea, that the election should not be left to crowds, for it scarcely ever happens that so many heads with one consent settle any affair well. It generally holds true. Quote, in certum sendi studia in contraria vulgus, unquote. Quote, opposing wishes render the fickle crowd, unquote. For, first, the clergy alone selected and presented him whom they had selected to the magistrate or senate and chief men. 
these, after deliberation, put their signature to the election, if it seemed proper, if not, they chose another whom they more highly approved. The matter was then laid before the multitude, who, although not bound by those previous proceedings, were less able to act tumultuously. Or, if the matter began with the multitude, it was only that it might be known whom they were most desirous to have, the wishes of the people being heard, the clergy at length elected. Thus it was neither lawful for the clergy to appoint whom they chose, nor were they, however, under the necessity of yielding to the foolish desires of the people. Leo sets down this order when he says, quote, The wishes of the citizens, the testimonies of the people, the choice of the honorable, the election of the clergy, are to be waited for, unquote. Again, quote, let the testimony of the honorable, the subscription of the clergy, the consent of the magistracy, and the people be obtained. Otherwise, says he, it must on no account be done, unquote. Nor is anything more intended by the decree of the council of Laodicea than that the clergy and rulers were not to allow themselves to be carried away by the rash multitude, but rather by their prudence and gravity to repress their foolish desires whenever there was occasion. Section 13. This mode of election was still in force in the time of Gregory, and probably continued to a much later period. Many of his letters, which are extant, clearly prove this, for whenever a new bishop is to be elected, his custom is to write to the clergy, magistrates, and people, sometimes also to the governor according to the nature of the government. But if, on account of the unsettled state of the church, he gives the oversight of the election to a neighboring bishop, he always requires a formal decision confirmed by the subscriptions of all. Nay, when Juan Constantius was elected bishop of Milan, and in consequence of the incursions of the barbarians, many of the Milanese had fled to Genoa, he thought that the election would not be lawful unless they too were called together and gave their assent. Nay, five hundred years have not elapsed since Pope Nicholas fixed the election of the Roman pontiff in this way. First, that the cardinal should precede. Next, that they should join to themselves the other clergy, and lastly, that the election should be ratified by the consent of the people. And in the end, he recites the decree of Leo, which I lately quoted, and orders it to be enforced in future. But should the malice of the wicked so prevail that the clergy are obliged to quit the city in order to make a pure election, he, however, orders that some of the people shall at the same time be present. The suffrage of the emperor, as far as we can understand, was required only in two churches, those of Rome and Constantinople, these being the two seats of empire. For when Ambrose was sent by Valentinianus to Milan with authority to superintend the election of a new bishop, it was an extraordinary proceeding, in consequence of the violent factions which raged among the citizens. But at Rome the authority of the emperor in the election of the bishop was so great that Gregory says he was appointed to the government of the church by his order, though he had been called by the people in regular form. The custom, however, was that when the magistrates, clergy, and people nominated anyone, he was forthwith presented to the emperor, who either by approving ratified or by disapproving annulled the election. There is nothing contrary to this practice in the decretals which are collected by Gratian, where all that is said is that it was on no account to be tolerated that canonical elections should be abolished and a king should at pleasure appoint a bishop, and that one thus promoted by violent authority was not to be consecrated by the metropolitans. For it is one thing to deprive the church of her right and transfer it entirely to the caprice of a single individual. It is another thing to assign to a king or emperor the honor of confirming a legitimate election by his authority. Section 14. It now remains to treat of the form by which the ministers of the ancient church were initiated to their office after election. This was termed by the Latins ordination or consecration, 
and by the Greeks, Greek word, chi, epsilon, iota, rho, omicron, tau, omicron, nu, iota, alpha, keratonia. Sometimes also, Greek word, chi, epsilon, iota, rho, omicron, theta, epsilon, sigma, iota, alpha, kerathesia. Though, keratonia properly denotes that mode of election by which suffrages are declared by a show of hands. There is extant a decree of the Council of Nice to the effect that the Metropolitans, with all the bishops of the province, were to meet to ordain him who was chosen. But if from distance or sickness or any other necessary cause, part were prevented, three at least should meet, and those who were absent signify their consent by letter. And this canon, after it had fallen into desuetude, was afterwards renewed by several councils. All, or at least all who had not an excuse, were enjoined to be present in order that a stricter examination might be had of the life and doctrine of him who was to be ordained, for the thing was not done without examination. And it appears from the words of Cyprian that in old time they were not wont to be called after the election, but to be present at the election, and with the view of their acting as moderators that no disorder might be committed by the crowd. For after saying that the people had the power either of choosing worthy or refusing unworthy priests, he immediately adds, Quote, for which reason we must carefully observe and hold by the divine and apostolic tradition, which is observed by us also and almost by all the provinces, that for the due performance of ordinations, all the nearest bishops of the province should meet with the people over whom the person is proposed to be ordained, and the bishop should be elected in presence of the people. But as they were sometimes too slowly assembled, and there was a risk that some might abuse the delay for purposes of intrigue, it was thought that it would be sufficient if they came after the designation was made, and on due investigation consecrated him who had been approved. Section 15. While this was done everywhere without exception, a different custom gradually gained ground, namely that those who were elected should go to the Metropolitan to obtain ordination. This was owing more to ambition and the corruption of the ancient custom than to any good reason. And not long after the authority of the Romish See being now increased, another still worse custom was introduced of applying to it for the consecration of the bishops of almost all Italy. This we may observe from the letters of Gregory. The ancient rite was preserved by a few cities only which had not yielded so easily. For instance, Milan. Perhaps metropolitan sees only retained their privilege. For, in order to consecrate an archbishop, it was the practice for all the provincial bishops to meet in the metropolitan city. The form used was the laying on of hands. See chapter 19, sections 28 and 31. I do not read that any other ceremonies were used, except that in the public meeting the bishops had some dress to distinguish them from the other presbyters. Presbyters also, and deacons, were ordained by the laying on of hands. But each bishop, with the college of presbyters, ordained his own presbyters. But though they all did the same act, yet because the bishop presided and the ordination was performed, as it were, under his auspices, it was said to be his. Hence, ancient writers often say that a presbyter does not differ in any respect from a bishop, except in not having the power of ordaining. Chapter 5. The Ancient Form of Government Utterly Corrupted by the Tyranny of the Papacy. There are 19 sections. Section 1. It may now be proper to bring under the eye of the reader the order of church government observed by the Roman See and all its satellites, and the whole of that hierarchy which they have perpetually in their mouths, and compare it with the description we have given of the primitive and early church, that the contrast may make it manifest what kind of church those have who plume themselves on the very title as sufficient to outweigh or rather overwhelm us. It will be best to begin with the call. 
that we may see who are called to the ministry, with what character, and on what grounds. Thereafter we will consider how far they faithfully fulfill their office. We shall give the first place to the bishops. Would that they could claim the honor of holding the first rank in this discussion. But the subject does not allow me even to touch it lightly without exposing their disgrace. Still, let me remember in what kind of writing I am engaged, and not allow my discourse, which ought to be framed for simple teaching, to wander beyond its proper limits. But let any of them who have not laid aside all modesty tell me what kind of bishops are uniformly elected in the present day. Any examination of doctrine is too old-fashioned. But if any respect is had to doctrine, they make choice of some lawyer who knows better how to plead in the forum than to preach in the church. This much is certain, that for a hundred years, scarcely one in a hundred, has been elected who had any acquaintance with sacred doctrine. I do not spare former ages because they were much better, but because the question now relates only to the present church. If morals be inquired into, we shall find few, or almost none, whom the ancient canons would not have judged unworthy. If one was not a drunkard, he was a fornicator. If one was free from this vice, he was either a gambler, or sportsman, or a loose liver in some respect. For there are lighter faults which, according to the ancient canons, exclude from the Episcopal office. But the most absurd thing of all is that even boys scarcely ten years of age are, by the permission of the Pope, made bishops. Such is the effrontery and stupidity to which they have arrived, that they have no dread even of that last and monstrous iniquity, which is altogether abhorrent even from natural feeling. Hence it appears what kind of elections these must have been when such supine negligence existed. Section 2. Then in election the whole right has been taken from the people. Vows, assents, subscriptions, and all things of the sort have disappeared. The whole power has been given to the canons alone. First they confer the episcopal office on whomsoever they please. By and by they bring him forth into the view of the people, but it is to be adored, not examined. But Leo protests that no reason permits this, and declares it to be a violent imposition. Cyprian, after declaring it to be of divine authority that election should not take place without the consent of the people, shows that a different procedure is at variance with the word of God. Numerous decrees of councils most strictly forbid it to be otherwise done, and if done, order it to be null. If this is true, there is not throughout the whole papacy in the present day any canonical election in accordance either with divine or ecclesiastical law. Now, were there no other evil in this, what excuse can they give for having robbed the church of her right? But the corruption of the times required, they say, that since hatred and party spirit prevailed with the people and magistrates in the election of bishops more than right and sound judgment, the determination should be confined to a few. Allow that this was the last remedy in desperate circumstances. When the cure was seen to be more hurtful than the disease, why was not a remedy provided for this new evil? But it is said that the course which the canons must follow is strictly prescribed. But can we doubt that even in old times the people, on meeting to elect a bishop, were aware that they were bound by the most sacred laws when they saw a rule prescribed by the word of God, that one sentence of which God describes the true character of a bishop ought justly to be of more weight than ten thousand canons. Nevertheless, carried away by the worst of feelings, they had no regard to law or equity. So, in the present day, though most excellent laws have been made, they remain buried in writing. Meanwhile, the general and approved practice is, and it is carried on, as it were, systematically, that drunkards, fornicators, gamblers are everywhere promoted to this honor. Nay, this is little. Bishoprics are the reward of adulterers and panders, for when they are given to hunters and hawkers, things may be considered at the best. 
to excuse such unworthy procedure in any way were to be wicked overmuch. The people had a most excellent canon prescribed to them by the word of God, viz. that a bishop must be blameless, apt to teach, not a brawler, etc. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Why then was the province of electing transferred from the people to these men? Just because among the tumults and factions of the people the word of God was not heard. And, on the other hand, why is it not in the present day transferred from these men, who not only violate all laws, but having cast off shame, libidinously, avariciously, and ambitiously mix and confound things human and divine? Section 3. But it is not true to say that the thing was devised as a remedy. We read that in old times tumults often arose in cities at the election of bishops, yet no one ever ventured to think of depriving the citizens of their right for they had other methods by which they could either prevent the fault or correct it when committed. I will state the matter as it truly is. When the people began to be negligent and making their choice and left the business as less suited to them to the presbyters, these abused the opportunity to usurp a domination which they afterwards established by putting forth new canons. Ordination is now nothing else than a mere mockery for the kind of examination of which they make a display is so empty and trifling that it even entirely wants the semblance. Therefore, when sovereigns, by paction with the Roman pontiffs, obtained for themselves the right of nominating bishops, the church sustained no new injury because the canons were merely deprived of an election which they had seized without any right or acquired by stealth. Nothing, indeed, can be more disgraceful than that bishops should be sent from courts to take possession of churches, and pious princes would do well to desist from such corruption. For there is an impious foliation of the church whenever any people have a bishop intruded whom they have not asked, or at least freely approved. But that disorderly practice, which long existed in churches, gave occasion to sovereigns to assume to themselves the presentation of bishops. They wished the benefice to belong to themselves, rather than to those who had no better right to it and who equally abused it. Section 4 such is the famous call, on account of which bishops boast that they are the successors of the apostles. They say, moreover, that they alone can competently appoint presbyters. But herein they most shamefully corrupt the ancient institution, that they by their ordination appoint not presbyters to guide and feed the people, but priests to sacrifice. In like manner, when they consecrate deacons, they pay no regard to their true and proper office, but only ordain to certain ceremonies concerning the cup and paten. But in the Council of Chalcedon it was, on the contrary, decreed that there should be no absolute ordinations, that is, ordinations without assigning to the ordained a place where they were to exercise their office. This decree is most useful for two reasons. First, the churches may not be burdened with superfluous expense, nor idle men receive what ought to be distributed to the poor. And secondly, that those who are ordained may consider that they are not promoted merely to an honorary office, but entrusted with a duty which they are solemnly bound to discharge. But the Roman authorities, who think that nothing is to be cared for in religion but their belly, consider the first title to be a revenue adequate to their support, whether it be from their own patrimony or from the priesthood. Accordingly, when they ordain presbyters or deacons without any anxiety as to where they ought to minister, they confer the order provided those ordained are sufficiently rich to support themselves. But what man can admit that the title which the decree of the council requires is an annual revenue for sustenance? Again, when more recent canons made bishops liable in the support of those whom they had ordained without a fit title, that they might thus repress to great facility, a method was devised of eluding the penalty. For he who is ordained promises that whatever be the title named, he will be contented with it. 
In this way he is precluded from an action for aliment. I say nothing of the thousand frauds which are here committed, as when some falsely claim the empty titles of benefices, from which they cannot obtain a sixpence of revenue, and others, by secret stipulation, obtain a temporary appointment, which they promise that they will immediately restore, but sometimes do not. There are still more mysteries of the same kind. Section 5. But although these grosser abuses were removed, is it not at all times absurd to appoint a presbyter without assigning him a locality? For when they ordain, it is only to sacrifice. But the legitimate ordination of a presbyter is to the government of the church, while deacons are called to the charge of alms. It is true, many pompous ceremonies are used to disguise the act, that mere show may excite veneration in the simple. But what effect can these semblances have upon men of sound minds, when beneath them there is nothing solid or true? They use ceremonies either borrowed from Judaism or devised by themselves. From these it were better if they would abstain of the trial, for it is unnecessary to say anything of the shadow which they retain, of the consent of the people, of other necessary things, there is no mention. By shadow I mean those ridiculous gesticulations framed in inept and frigid imitation of antiquity. The bishops have their vicars, who, previous to ordination, inquire into doctrine. But what is the inquiry? Is it whether they are able to read their missals, or whether they can decline some common noun which occurs in the lesson, or subjugate a verb, or give the meaning of some one word. For it is not necessary to give the sense of a single sentence. And yet even those who are deficient in these puerile elements are not repelled, provided they bring the recommendation of money or influence. Of the same nature is the question which is thrice put in an unintelligible voice, when the persons who are to be ordained are brought to the altar, viz., are they worthy of the honor? One, who never saw them, but has his part in the play, that no form may be wanting, answers, They are worthy. What can you accuse in these venerable fathers, save that, by indulging in such sacrilegious sport, they shamelessly laugh at God and man? But as they have long been in possession of the thing, they think they have now a legal title to it. For anyone who ventures to open his lips against these palpable and flagrant iniquities is hurried off to a capital trial, like one who had in old time divulged the mysteries of Ceres. Would they act thus if they had any belief in a god? Section 6. Then, in the collation of benefices, which was formerly conjoined with ordination, but is now altogether separate, how much better do they conduct themselves? But they have many reasons to give, for it is not bishops alone who confer the office of priests, and even in their case, where they are called collators, they have not always the full right, but others have the presentation, while they only retain the honorary title of collations. To these are added nominations from schools, resignations, either simple or by way of exchange, commendatory rescripts, preventions, and the like. But they all conduct themselves in such a way that one cannot upgrade another. I maintain that, in the papacy in the present day, scarcely one benefice in a hundred is conferred without seminy, as the ancients have defined it. I say not that all purchase for a certain sum, but show me one in twenty who does not attain to the priesthood by some sinister method. Some owe their promotion to kindred or affinity, others to the influence of their parents, while others procure favor by obsequiousness. In short, the end for which the offices are conferred is that provision may be made not for churches, but for those who receive them. Accordingly, they call them benefices, by which name they sufficiently declare that they look on them in no other light than as the largesses by which princes either court the favor or reward the services of their soldiers.
I say nothing of the fact that these rewards are conferred on barbers, cooks, grooms, and dross of that sort. At present, indeed, there are no cases in law courts which make a greater noise than those concerning sacerdotal offices, so that you may regard them as nothing else than game set before dogs to be hunted. Is it tolerable even to hear the name of pastors given to those who have forced their way into the possession of a church as into an enemy's country, who have evicted it by forensic brawls, who have bought it for a price, who have labored for it by sordid sycophancy, who, while scarcely lisping boys, have obtained it like heritage from uncles and relatives. Sometimes even bastards obtain it from their fathers. Section 7. Was the licentiousness of the people, however corrupt and lawless, ever carried to such a height? But a more monstrous thing still is that one man, I say not what kind of man, but certainly one who cannot govern himself, is appointed to the charge of five or six churches. In the courts of princes in the present day, you may see youths who are thrice abbots, twice bishops, once archbishops. Everywhere are canons loaded with five, six, or seven cures, of not one of which they take the least charge except to draw the income. I will not object that the word of God cries aloud against this. It has long ceased to have the least weight with them. I will not object that many councils denounce the severest punishment against this dishonest practice. These two, when it suits them, they boldly contemn. But I say that it is monstrous wickedness, altogether opposed to God, to nature, and to ecclesiastical government, that one thief should lie brooding over several churches, that the name of pastor should be given to one who, even if he were willing, could not be present among his flock, and yet, such is their impudence, they cloak these abominations with the name of church, that they may exempt them from all blame. Nay, if you please, in these iniquities is contained that sacred succession to which, as they boast, it is owing that the church does not perish. Section 8. Let us now see, as the second mark for estimating a legitimate pastor, how faithfully they discharge their office. Of the priests who are there elected, some are called monks, others seculars. The former herd was unknown to the early church. Even to hold such a place in the church is so repugnant to the monastic profession that in old times when persons were elected out of monasteries to clerical offices, they ceased to be monks. And accordingly Gregory, though in his time there were many abuses, did not suffer the offices to be thus confounded. For he insists that those who have been appointed abbots shall resign the clerical office, because no one can be properly at the same time a monk and a clerk, the one being an obstacle to the other. Now, were I to ask how he can well fulfill his office who is declared by the canons to be unfit, what answer, pray, will they give? They will quote those abortive decrees of Innocent and Boniface, by which monks are admitted to the honor and power of the priesthood, that they remain in their monasteries. But is it at all reasonable that any unlearned ass, as soon as he has seized upon the Roman see, may, by one little word, overturn all antiquity? But of this matter afterwards... Let us now suffice that in the purer times of the church it was regarded as a great absurdity for a monk to hold the office of priest. For Jerome declares that he does not the office of priest while he is living among monks, and ranks himself as one of the people to be governed by the priests. But to concede this to them, what duty do they perform? Some of the mendicants preach, while all the other monks chant or mutter masses in their cells, as if either our Savior had wished, or the nature of the office permits, presbyters to be made for such a purpose. When Scripture plainly testifies that it is a duty of a presbyter to rule his own church, Acts 20, verse 28, is it not impious profanation to transfer it to another purpose, nay, altogether to change the sacred institution of God? 
or when they are ordained, they are expressly forbidden to do what God enjoins on all presbyters. For this is their cant, that a monk, contented with his cell, neither presume to administer the sacraments, nor hold any other public office. Let them deny, if they can, that it is open mockery of God when anyone is appointed a presbyter in order to abstain from his proper and genuine office, and when he who has the name is not able to have the thing. Section 9. I come to the seculars, some of whom are, as they speak, beneficiaries, that is, have offices by which they are maintained, while others let out their services day by day to chant or say masses, and live in a manner on a stipend thus collected. Benefices either have a cure of souls, as bishoprics and parochial charges, or they are the stipends of delicate men who gain a livelihood by chanting, as prebends, canonries, parsonships, deaneries, chaplainships, and the like. Although things being now turned upside down, the offices of abbot and prior are not only conferred on secular presbyters, but on boys also by privilege, that is, by common and usual custom. In regard to the mercenaries who seek their food from day to day, what else could they do than they actually do, in other words, prostitute themselves in an illiberal and disgraceful manner for gain, especially from the vast multitude of them with which the world now teems? Hence, as they dare not beg openly or think that in this way they would gain little, they go about like hungry dogs, and by a kind of barking importunity extort from the unwilling what they may deposit in their hungry stomachs. Were I here to attempt to describe how disgraceful it is to the church that the honor and office of a presbyter should come to this, I should never have done. My readers, therefore, must not expect from me a discourse which can fully represent this flagitious indignity. I briefly say that if it is the office of a presbyter, and this both the word of God prescribes, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, and the ancient canons enjoin, to feed the church and administer the spiritual kingdom of Christ, all those priests who have no work are stipend, save in the traffic of masses, not only fail in their office, but have no lawful office to discharge. No place is given them to teach. They have no people to govern. In short, nothing is left them but an altar on which to sacrifice Christ. This is to sacrifice not to God, but to demons, as we shall afterwards show. See chapter 18, sections 3, 9, and 14. Section 10. I am not here touching on extraneous faults, but only on the intestine evil which lies at the root of the very institution. I will add a sentence which will sound strange in their ears, but which, as it is true, it is right to express that canons, deans, chaplains, provosts, and all who are maintained in idle offices of priesthood are to be viewed in the same light. For what service can they perform to the church? The preaching of the word, the care of discipline, and the administration of the sacraments they have shaken off as burdens too grievous to be borne. What then remains on which they can plume themselves as being true presbyters, merely chanting in pompous ceremonies? But what is this to the point? If they allege custom, use, or the long prescription, I, on the contrary, appeal to the definition by which our Savior has described true presbyters, and show the qualities of those who are to be regarded as presbyters. But if they cannot endure the hard law of submitting to the rule of Christ, let them at least allow the cause to be decided by the authority of the primitive church. Their condition will not be one whit improved when decided according to the ancient canons. Those who have degenerated into canons ought to be presbyters, as they formerly were, to rule the church in common with the bishop, and be, as it were, his colleagues in the pastoral office. What they call deaneries of the chapter have no concern with the true government of the church, much less chaplainships and other similar worthless names. In what light, then, are they all to be regarded? Assuredly, both the word of Christ and the practice of the primitive church exclude them from the honor of presbyters. 
They maintain, however, that they are presbyters. But we must unmask them, and we shall find that their whole profession is most alien from the office of presbyters, as that office is described to us by the apostles, and was discharged in the primitive church. All such offices, therefore, by whatever titles they are distinguished, as they are novelties, and certainly not supported either by the institution of God, or the ancient practice of the church, ought to have no place in a description of that spiritual government which the church received, and was consecrated by the mouth of the Lord himself. Or, if they would have me express it in ruder and coarser terms, since chaplains, canons, deans, provosts, and such lazy bellies do not even with one finger touch a particle of the office which is necessarily required in presbyters, they must not be permitted falsely to usurp the honor, and thereby violate the holy institution of Christ. Section 11. There still remain bishops and rectors of parishes. I wish that they would contend for the maintenance of their office. I would willingly grant that they have a pious and excellent office if they would discharge it, but when they desert the churches committed to them, and throwing the care upon others, would still be considered pastors, they just act as if the office of pastor were to do nothing. If any usurer, who never stirs from the city, were to give himself out as a plowman, or vine dresser, or a soldier, who has constantly been in the field or the camp, and has never seen books or the form, to pass for a lawyer, who would tolerate the absurdity? Much more absurdly do those act who would be called and deemed lawful pastors of the church, and are unwilling so to be. How few are those who in appearance even take the superintendence of their church. Many spend their lives in devouring the revenues of churches, which they never visit even for the purpose of inspection. Some, once a year, go themselves or send a steward, that nothing may be lost in the letting of them. When the corruption first crept in, those who wished to enjoy this kind of vacation pleaded privilege, but it is now a rare case for anyone to reside in his church. They look upon them merely in the light of farms, over which they appoint their vicars as greaves or husbandmen. But it is repugnant to common sense to regard him as a shepherd who has never seen a sheep of his flock. Section 12. It appears that in the time of Gregory some of the seeds of this corruption existed, the rulers of churches having begun to be more negligent in teaching, for he thus bitterly complains, quote, The world is full of priests, and yet laborers in the harvest are rare. For we indeed undertake the office of the priesthood, but we perform not the work of the office, unquote. Again, quote, as they have no bowels of love, they would be thought lords, but do not at all acknowledge themselves to be fathers. They change a post of humility into the elevation of ascendancy, unquote. Again, quote, but we, O pastors, what are we doing, we who obtain the hire, but are not laborers? We have fallen off to extraneous business. We undertake one thing, we perform another. We leave the ministry of the word, and to our punishment, as I see, are called bishops holding the honor of the name, not the power, unquote. Since he uses such bitterness of expression against those who were only less diligent or sedulous in their office, what, pray, would he have said, if he had seen that very few bishops, if any at all, and scarcely one in a hundred of the other clergy, mounted the pulpit once in their whole lifetime? For to such a degree of infatuation have men come, that it is thought beneath the episcopal dignity to preach a sermon to the people. In the time of Bernard, things had become still worse. Accordingly, we see how bitterly he inveighs against the whole order, and yet there is reason to believe that matters were then in a much better state than now. Section 13. Whoever will duly examine and weigh the whole form of ecclesiastical government is now existing in the papacy will find that there is no kind of spoliation in which robbers act more licentiously without law or measure. 
Certainly all things are so unlike, nay, so opposed to the institution of Christ, have so degenerated from the ancient customs and practices of the church, are so repugnant to nature and reason, that a greater injury cannot be done to Christ than to use his name in defending this disorderly rule. We, say they, are the pillars of the church, the priests of religion, the vicegerents of Christ, the heads of the faithful, because the apostolic authority has come to us by succession. As if they were speaking to stocks, they perpetually plume themselves in these absurdities. Whenever they make such boasts, I, in my turn, will ask, What have they in common with the apostles? We are not now treating of some hereditary honor which can come to men while they are asleep, but of the office of preaching which they so greatly shun. In like manner, when we maintain that their kingdom is the tyranny of Antichrist, they immediately object that their venerable hierarchy has often been extolled by great and holy men, as if the holy fathers, when they commended the ecclesiastical hierarchy or spiritual government handed down to them by the apostles, ever dreamed of that shapeless and dreary chaos where bishoprics are held for the most part by ignorant asses who do not even know the first and ordinary rudiments of the faith, or occasionally by boys who have just left their nurse. Or, if any are more learned, this, however, is a rare case, they regard the Episcopal office as nothing else than a title of magnificence and splendor, where the rectors of churches no more think of feeding the flock than a cobbler does of plowing, where all things are so confounded by a confusion worse than that of Babel that no genuine trace of paternal government is any longer to be seen. Section 14. But if we descend to conduct, where is that light of the world which Christ requires? Where the salt of the earth? Where that sanctity which might operate as a perpetual censorship? In the present day there is no order of men more notorious for luxury, effeminacy, delicacy, and all kinds of licentiousness, and no order are more apt or skillful teachers of imposture, fraud, treachery, and perfidy. Nowhere is there more skill or audacity and mischief to say nothing of ostentation, pride, rapacity, and cruelty. In bearing these, the world is so disgusted that there is no fear lest I seem to exaggerate. One thing I say which even they themselves will not be able to deny. Among bishops there is scarcely an individual, and among the parochial clergy not one in a hundred, who, if sentence were passed on his conduct according to the ancient canons, would not deserve to be excommunicated or at least deposed from his office. I seem to say what is almost incredible, so completely has that ancient discipline which enjoins strict censure of the morals of the clergy become obsolete. But such the fact really is, that those who serve under the banner and auspices of the Romish See now go and boast of their sacerdotal order. It is certain that that which they have is neither from Christ, nor his apostles, nor the fathers, nor the early church. Section 15 let the deacons now come forward and show their most sacred distribution of ecclesiastical goods. See chapter 19, section 32. Although their deacons are not at all elected for that purpose, for the only injunction which they lay upon them is to minister at the altar, to read the gospel, or chant and perform I know not what frivolous acts. Nothing is said of alms, nothing of the care of the poor, nothing at all of the function which they formerly performed. I am speaking of the institution itself. For if we look to what they do, theirs, in fact, is no office but only a step to the priesthood. In one thing, those who hold the place of deacons in the Mass exhibit an empty image of antiquity, for they receive the offerings previous to consecration. Now, the ancient practice was that before the communion of the supper, the faithful mutually kissed each other and offered alms at the altar, thus declaring their love, first by symbol and afterwards by an act of beneficence. The deacon, who was steward of the poor, received what was given that he might distribute it. 
Now these alms no more comes to the poor than if they were cast into the sea. They therefore delude the church by that lying deaconship. Assuredly in this they have nothing resembling the apostolical institution or the ancient practice. The very distribution of goods they have transferred elsewhere, and have so settled it that nothing can be imagined more disorderly. For as robbers, after murdering their victims, divide the plunder, so these men, after extinguishing the light of God's word, as if they had murdered the church, have imagined that whatever had been dedicated to pious uses was set down for prey and plunder. Accordingly, they have made a division, each seizing for himself as much as he could. Section 16. All those ancient methods which we have explained are not only disturbed, but altogether disguised and expunged. The chief part of the plunder has gone to bishops and city presbyters, who, having thus enriched themselves, have been converted into canons. That the partition was a mere scramble is apparent from this, that even to this day they are litigating as to the proportions. Be this as it may, the decision has provided that out of all the goods of the church, not one penny shall go to the poor, to whom at least the half belonged. The canons expressly assign a fourth part to them, while the other fourth they destine to the bishops, that they may expend it in hospitality and other offices of kindness. I say nothing as to what the clergy ought to do with their portion, or the use to which they ought to apply it, for it has been clearly shown that what is set apart for churches, buildings, and other expenditure ought in necessity be given to the poor. If they had one spark of the fear of God in their heart, could they, I ask, bear the consciousness that all their food and clothing is the produce of theft, nay, of sacrilege. But as they are little moved by the judgment of God, they should at least reflect that those whom they would persuade that the orders of their church are so beautiful and well arranged as they are wont to boast, are men endued with sense and reason. Let them briefly answer whether the diaconate is a license to rob and steal. If they deny this they will be forced to confess that no diaconate remains among them, since the whole administration of their ecclesiastical resources has been openly converted into sacrilegious depredation. Section 17. But here they use a very fair gloss, for they say that the dignity of the church is not unbecomingly maintained by this magnificence, and certain of their sect are so impudent as to dare openly to boast that thus only are fulfilled the prophecies in which the ancient prophets describe the splendor of Christ's kingdom, where the sacerdotal order is exhibited in royal attire, that it was not without cause that God made the following promises to his church. Quote, All kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Unquote. Psalm 72, verse 11. Quote, awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Sion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Unquote. Isaiah 52, verse 1. Quote, All they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together with thee. Unquote. Isaiah 60, verses 6 and 7. I fear I should seem childish were I to dwell long in refuting this dishonesty. I am unwilling, therefore, to use words unnecessarily. I ask, however, were any Jew to misapply these passages, what answer would they give? They would rebuke his stupidity in making a carnal and worldly application of things spiritually said of Christ's spiritual kingdom. For we know that under the image of earthly objects the prophets have delineated to us the heavenly glory which ought to shine in the church. For in those blessings with these words literally expressed, the church never less abounded than under the apostles, and yet all admit that the power of Christ's kingdom was then most flourishing. What, then, is the meaning of the above passages? That everything which is precious, sublime, and illustrious ought to be made subject to the Lord. 
as to its being said expressly of kings, that they will submit to Christ, that they will throw their diadems at his feet, that they will dedicate their resources to the church, when was this more truly and fully manifested than when Theodosius, having thrown aside the purple and left the insignia of empire, like one of the people, humbled himself before God and the church in solemn repentance? Then when he and other like pious princes made it their study and their care to preserve pure doctrine in a church, to cherish and protect sound teachers. But that priests did not then luxuriate in superfluous wealth is sufficiently declared by this one sentence of the Council of Aquileia, over which Ambrose presided, quote, Poverty in the priests of the Lord is glorious, unquote. It is certain that the bishops then had some means by which they might have rendered the glory of the church conspicuous if they had deemed them the true ornaments of the church. But knowing that nothing was more adverse to the duty of pastors than to plume themselves on the delicacies of the table, on splendid clothes, numerous attendants, and magnificent places, they cultivated and followed the humility and modesty, nay, the very poverty, which Christ has consecrated among his servants. Section 18. But not to be tedious, let us again briefly sum up and show how far that distribution, or rather squandering, of ecclesiastical goods, which now exists, differs from the true diaconate, which both the word of God recommends and the ancient church observed. See Book 1, Chapter 11, Section 7 and 13, and Book 3, Chapter 20, Section 30. See above in Chapter 4, Section 8. I say that what is employed on the adorning of churches is improperly laid out, if not accompanied with that moderation which the very nature of sacred things prescribes, and which the apostles and other holy fathers prescribed, both by precept and example. But is anything like this seen in churches in the present day? Whatever accords, I do not say with that ancient frugality, but with decent mediocrity, is rejected. Naught pleases but what savors of luxury and the corruption of the times. Meanwhile, so far are they from taking due care of living temples, that they would allow thousands of the poor to perish sooner than break down the smallest cup or platter to relieve their necessity. That I may not decide too severely at my own hand, I would only ask the pious reader to consider what Exuperius, the bishop of Toulouse, whom we have mentioned, what Acacius, or Ambrose, or any one like-minded, if they were to rise from the dead, would say. Certainly, while the necessities of the poor are so great, they would not approve of their funds being carried away from them as superfluous. Not to mention that, even were there no poor, the uses to which they are applied are noxious in many respects, and useful in none. But I appeal not to men. These goods have been dedicated to Christ, and ought to be distributed at his pleasure. In vain, however, will they make that to be expenditure for Christ, which they have squandered contrary to his commands, though, to confess the truth, the ordinary revenue of the church is not much curtailed by these expenses. No bishoprics are so opulent, no abbacies so productive in charge, no benefices so numerous and ample as to suffice for the gluttony of priests. But while they would spare themselves, they induce the people by superstition to employ what ought to have been distributed to the poor in building temples, erecting statues, buying plate, and providing costly garments. Thus the daily alms are swallowed up in this abyss. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 
4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.